0: Beloved congregation of the Lord, turn with me again to uh, Matthew 22, and we'll read the first four verses. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them That were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Children, When we talk about great teachers, people who are able to explain things from the Bible, who would you say is the very greatest of teachers? Well, maybe you thought of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, indeed, is the greatest and the best of teachers. When he spoke everyone could understand him and the way that he spoke was often by means of parables parables and children i'm sure you've you've heard of parables before maybe you've even had parables explained to you in this way a parable is a story that explains Heavenly realities through an earthly picture. The parable, you see, it gives a story of things that we can see and relate to. But it is like a window. Causing us to behold great and glorious truths that the Lord would reveal to us. Jesus used parables, you see in order to explain the mysteries of his gospel. But there's another aspect to parables that we all need to understand. When his disciples asked him, why was it that he so often preached and taught by means of parables? In Matthew 13, verses 10 to 11... He answered them in this way because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. You see, Jesus explained that wherever the parables are brought forth, there is a great dividing line among his hearers. The very simplicity of these parables causes the proud and the unbelieving to stumble at them, to reject the glorious truths revealed revealed in that parable. At the same time, those who will humble themselves and receive the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith shall indeed find the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven revealed to them. It is with this that we approach with fear and trembling the first of a number of sermons on this parable of the wedding banquet. Chapter 22, verses 1 to 14 of Matthew's gospel. It is set forth, you see, at a crucial time in our Lord Jesus' ministry. He is entering into that climactic conclusion of his long series of battles and confrontations with the scribes and Pharisees. He has purged the temple of thieves who would seek to pollute the temple, that house of prayer, with their corruptions and selfishness. He has, as a great object lesson, taken a fig tree And pronounced a word of judgment upon it. That he would bear fruit no more. Representing his fruitless people of the Jewish church. Who will not bear forth fruit of repentance. And so will incur his judgment. And in these final parables. That the Lord Jesus pronounces upon his hearers. He is setting forth the terrible situation that will befall the Jewish people, the Messiah having come to them, the Messiah having revealed the secrets of the kingdom unto them, he will finally be rejected by this people. And for those who reject his message, they shall indeed incur this terrible judgment. You see, the parables are not just these cute stories which we may think about and be entertained by. No, indeed, they search the hearts of sinners of every age. And they bring to the focus the claims upon the Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus upon our souls. As we consider the first part of this great parable. And the truths revealed therein, we will see in verses 1 to 4 the great theme, All things are ready. All things are ready. And we will see in the first place the gospel's provision. The gospel's provision. Children, that simply means that which is provided by the gospel. The gospel's provision. I mean... Look at the verses that are set before us for us they talk about the provision of a great king the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son maybe you remember last May there was the coronation of the very next king of Canada. There was King Charles III replacing Queen Elizabeth. And in that great coronation ceremony, we saw a man who was arrayed in golden clothing and a great golden robe, a great golden crown placed upon his head, a royal scepter representing authority. And there he was enthroned in great splendor and awesome prestige. Why all this spectacle? Because according to the traditions of that ancient Christian kingdom, though long forgotten, I fear in their substance, the king is to be understood as a representative representative of God's authority, that all legitimate authority it rests with the king as the chosen representative of God to enforce justice and righteousness through a right and a holy rule. That is the legitimate role of every civil government. However, it is draped up with different ceremonies or different titles. That is the essence of it. And Jesus here, in speaking of a certain king, would have us to fashion our thoughts of God, according to this picture. There is a king. But whereas in the story the king is a mere human subject, it points to a great heavenly truth of the great sovereign Lord's authority. The one who is without body, parts, or passions. The one of whom it is said that even the heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. The one of infinite majesty, righteousness, wisdom, and might He is the great Lord, the great God, the great King of kings, the great Lord of lords, to whom all authority, honor, and power is to be rendered. How do you fashion your thoughts of God just as a buddy, just as a friend just as one who can suit your own needs and fancies when your desires must be met or do you think of God in this way as a true and a righteous king how do you think of his gospel? How do you think of his word? Is it a word of authority? And indeed, one that provides with that authority. This king, you see, with all authority, he is, has prepared a wedding That's what we read there. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. this marriage or this wedding is for the king's son. And as every father delights in his son as somewhat of his image and the uh, one who carries on his legacy, so also a king invests a special kind of delight in his son as the one who is his heir. And while that is true in human relationships so much more with the great heavenly picture set forth here, the Son of God the very equal of God the Father, according to his deity, power, dominion, and might, the one who eternally is begotten of the Father, who is his express image, the very wisdom of the Father, the one who from eternity has been in the bosom of the Father, the one who is of one essence and substance with the Father, one true and living God, This is the Son who is revealed here, a marriage for the Son of God. When was such a marriage prepared? Well, do not look to history, do not look to this or that event or time. Upon the calendar, your hearts and minds must be elevated unto the eternal wisdom and purpose and decree of God, wherein that eternal covenant of redemption. God set apart his son to be the true bridegroom, to be the true heir and head of redeemed humanity. And according to the likeness of this illustration, he indeed appointed a bride for his son and heir. He appointed a church to be the bride of Christ, This one to be married unto the incarnate Son of God, who in the fullness of time would come into this sin-drenched world full of judgment, sin, and death, and would redeem us sinful people unto himself. A group of people particularly numbered, individually named, lovingly and personally known by God the Father, and separated before before you ev- before you were ever born unto the loving embrace of this marriage, you know, recently I recently had the occasion to uh, witness a, a wonderful marriage of two members of my family. It was a wonderful wedding service there in the church and the the husband and the wife, they exchanged vows of lifelong commitment one to the other. They were received into that covenant of marriage and afterward there was a great feast, a great banquet afterward as all the family and friends of the bride and groom were gathered and in keeping with family tradition what the family had prepared Was these parallel pictures of the bride and the groom as they were growing up. There they were as little babies. There they were as young children. Then in teenage years and on and on until finally they met one another, fell in love, and marriage was proposed. And it occurred to me that all that time, long before they ever knew one another or before marriage was ever thought about in their minds, in the mind and purpose of God, this man and this woman were appointed one for another. I was speaking to my wife afterward and said, surely it's the case that we should be praying, praying for the spouses of our own children, for they are there somewhere, somewhere there in the world, we should be praying that the Lord would protect them, praying that the Lord would guide them. And we also ought to think of our own marriages in, in that way, as those that are appointed in the will of God and are to be treated as a holy and a sacred ordinance that we have vowed to uphold. But if we would regard human marriage as important, how much more this eternal marriage covenant of the Son of God with his church, his his chosen bride. All the blessings of salvation are promised in this marriage covenant. They are secured and appointed for this sinful people, that they would be brought into the embrace of the love of God through and in their blessed bridegroom, that they would be brought into this eternal relationship as those who, though separated from God by nature by their great sins, yet are redeemed unto this holy calling, redeemed to be presented faultless before the throne of God upon that great day of days where the bride of Christ, all of his redeemed people will be sanctified through his blood and and sanctified through his spirit and presented as a glorious bride fit for the perfect worship and communion and bliss of God in heaven. There we have a wedding that is prepared. But this wedding, you see, is also connected to a great feast. It seems to be this that is the the part of the marriage that is set forth in the parable. And, of course, a parable doesn't convey every uh, truth. And you shouldn't dwell upon every particular. but, But there's this that is set forth. The great feast is prepared in connection with this wedding. Notice how the king speaks of it there in verse 12. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. All things are ready. Everything is prepared. You know, it may be the case that your wedding was a very simple affair. Just a small number of of families there And it may be the case that just a few friends were gathered there for that wedding. And if it was done according to the will of God, it was surely a a wonderful occasion. But when we think about a wedding for a king, for indeed the king's heir, then surely nothing will be held back but a great and a rich banquet, the very best that the kingdom has to offer will surely be in store. And here, the wonders of the gospel set forth as a great feast. These animals, they are slaughtered. All of the great delicacies of food and drink are set forth upon the table. All the servants have hustled and bustled to make everything pristine, everything perfect, everything to be delectable and delightful. And so this provision is utterly perfect. Indeed, the gospel set forth in numerous scripture passages in in exactly this way, as a great feast. You think of the prophecies of Isaiah in particular. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. Not a feast of just some poultry crackers or a few herbs, but no fat, rich animals who have been slaughtered. Great wine that has been prepared. A great feast to satisfy. Isaiah 55, verse 2, Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which it satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. What do all these things mean? Well, the great blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ, even all that was promised and secured within that marriage covenant of the Lamb, they are set forth in the gospel, that good news of salvation. And so wherever it is that the gospel is proclaimed, it is, as it were, the great provision of Christ. And all that he has done is set forth before you as a great banquet, as a great feast. There you are in your sins, lying under your condemnation, the wrath and judgment of God hanging over upon you, this God who is a consuming fire ready to devour you. But in his infinite love, he does set forth before you the provision of Christ and him crucified. Even the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in his righteousness, in his suitability as your substitute and sin bearer, he is presented before you, Christ, as the substitute to take your place. And all is ready. Did not he say, there upon the cross, it is finished. This one who had come into the world, the one who had lived a perfect life, enduring all the wrath of God in the place of his people, he indeed endured an exquisite, intricate, unfathomable pain and anguish. The perfect wrath of God against a hell deserving people. He took that cup, the cup of the God, Father's wrath, and he drank it to the very dregs. He endured, both in body and in soul, the excruciating anguish of the wrath of God and purchased a, a full and perfect righteousness. Nothing is lacking. Everything is perfect. The very Son of God, the one who made the worlds, the one who is worthy to receive a million worlds as his inheritance, he has given his very life, a life that was worthy and was commensurate to the salvation of a billion worlds, has died in the place of sinners. And so it is set before you. Set before you, not just to gaze upon, not just to consider, but that this message would be received, that your aching soul, that your wounded heart would lay hold upon the great benefit that is set forth. Why do you labor for that which is not food, Isaiah had asked? Why is it that in comparison to all the other things that you may feast upon, the dirty promises of this world of pleasure, the pitiful excuses that you render for your sins, the half-hearted attempts at being right with God apart from the finished work of Christ. All these things have nothing to be compared to the great provision of the gospel. It is set forth as the feast of a king, as the one who has prepared that which is perfect and suitable for majesty. And here we are, but worms. Here we are, filthy sinners, creatures of the dust, that have dared to betray the very God of heaven with our terrible transgressions. It is much greater than if a king had taken a bunch of ragged beggars and brought them into the very king's table. No, much greater than that. He takes rebels. He takes traitors. He takes those who are sworn enemies of him. And these are the ones who he presents this benefit to. We see the provision of the gospel, but notice in particular this invitation of the gospel as well. Notice again, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed. All things are ready. Come unto the marriage, he says. This was a message of invitation. Invitation that his great wedding feast should be received. Come to the wedding, the people were bidden. Indeed, a number of things are noteworthy about this aspect the fact that the gospel is an invitation. One thing To notice here is that there are these servants that are commissioned. Notice how it's put. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding that they and they would not come. Servants who were sent. Who is it that Jesus has particularly in mind? What is it that this picture points to? Well, it seems that the principal audience here is the Jewish church of the Old Covenant. And so we could think of the many different servants of God who proclaimed the kingdom and salvation of Jesus Christ. We think of the prophets like Jeremiah, Elijah, Isaiah, and so forth. We think of John the Baptist, he who came preaching repentance saying that the axe is laid upon the fruit of the tree, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We could think of the disciples of Jesus himself. In Matthew 10, it speaks of how they are sent forth by Christ to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to perform miracles, and yes, to preach the kingdom of heaven. But surely we can say that included in this principle and in this illustration in one way is every true herald of the gospel, every gospel preacher. Even the Apostle Paul spoke in this way in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He said, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. The preacher is an ambassador for Christ. The words that he are to speak are not his own words, but the words of Christ. He speaks with the divine authority of Christ, he speaks of the salvation of Christ, and in that sense, he does indeed call all. To the wedding feast. All of the sufficiency of Christ in his person and work is sent forth not just as an exhibition, but with the authoritative command and proclamation that you believe and repent. So it is spoken by Matthew Henry upon this text. He says, All that are within hearing of the joyful sound of the gospel, to them is the word of this invitation sent. The servants that bring the invitation do not set down their names in a paper. There is no occasion for that, since none are excluded but those that exclude themselves. None are excluded, but those who exclude themselves. The invitation is not such as though it comes forth and says, here is your name, come to the wedding feast. No, it is put out indiscriminately, without discrimination. All are commanded, all are compelled, all are Required and all are invited authoritatively to this wedding feast. So it is, it is in this sense, in this sense, that not a few of our Reformed forefathers spoke of the gospel as an offer, as an offer. Consider the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7.3, speaking of that uh, characterization of the gospel as a covenant of grace. Notice what the Westminster theologians wrote there. Quote, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, speaking of the covenant of works with Adam, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offereth Offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. So you see there how utterly different the Reformed understanding here is from the Arminian understanding, where an Arminian, or one who denies the sovereignty of God and salvation, would speak of the gospel as an offer. It would be a sort of as a take it or a leave it sort of thing. Here is God saying, please, please receive, and he is powerless to make any to be receivers of this grace. And yet the Reformed confess that indeed, where the gospel is offered, God is at work authoritatively calling his elect people by his Holy Spirit and granting unto them not only the external calling with their ears, but the internal calling in their hearts. So it is that the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 31 what is effectual calling? That calling which is effectual unto salvation. Answer, effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered, freely offered to us in the gospel. So also our own canons of door in heads three and four of doctrine in Article eight. We read, as many as are called by the gospel are unfeignedly called. For God has most earnestly and truly declared in his word What will be acceptable to him, namely that all who are called should comply with the invitation and moreover seriously promises eternal life and rest to as many as shall come and believe in him. Article 9. It is not the fault of the gospel, nor of Christ offered therein, nor of God who calls men by the gospel, and it confers upon them various gifts that those who are called by the ministry of the word refuse to come and be converted. The fault lies in themselves. So you haven't. The sovereign purpose of God is to send forth his gospel in this great authority, setting forth the excellency of Christ with the warm invitation that sinners come and receive life and forgiveness through the blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that this is the most warm and inviting of invitations. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Come, says God. Everything is set forth before you. Everything that is necessary for your good and salvation is prepared. So it is that it is appointed to men that they must reckon with this God. They must not cast this aside just so many words. They must not wait until this or that qualification may be met before they would take this seriously. No, the word of the gospel is the very word of God. And none is allowed or permitted to neglect it. So it is that we see not only the gospel provision, but also the gospel's invitation. And I would speak to you in this third place of this gospel's requirement. And I would speak to you very personally now. For the truth is that you cannot deny but that God has come close to you today. You cannot deny that he has come close through the word of his gospel. He has spoken to you of a Savior who is sufficient and willing to forgive you all your sins, of his perfect blessed work upon the cross. And God, who has come so close and so personal with his gospel, he would have you understand that you must receive his invitation. You must do so. And any number of excuses may be offered at this point. Well, I would insist upon seeing the names that are written upon the Lamb's book of life. I would insist upon knowing my state of election before I can come unto Christ. Oh, how foolish and how vain to imagine that anyone could know or be assured of their election apart from Christ. You see, the only thing that God's election concerns in this respect of the predestination of some unto eternal life and others unto eternal death is this. That in his everlasting grace and love, a certain number are indeed appointed in Christ to receive this salvation. But it is not apart from Christ or prior to coming to Christ or being grafted into Christ by faith that you can know yourself to have any stake in this election. The only word of the scriptures unto you who have rejected the call of the gospel unto this point is the word of the law. That the one who does these things, the full requirements of the law under the covenant of works, the one who does these things shall live by them. But that the wages of sin is death. No other word can be spoken unto you concerning your state. And so understand what a desperate situation you are in. You lie in the midst of death as one who is but a hair's breadth away from an endless eternity under the wrath of God in just judgment for your sins. And you must pay to the uttermost farthing, you must pay every last penny of your colossal debt, never to have repaid it fully, for the wrath of God will ever abide upon you. And so it is that there is no time for games. There is no time for speculation. There is no time for anything but this. The Lord has come close to you today. He has come close to you in his great word of grace, even that of the gospel. Speaking of his eternal love, his never-ending grace, the full suitability of Christ as your sin bearer, and he will demand that you respond. He will demand that you respond, not by putting this off and delaying. Well, maybe tomorrow I'll get serious about my soul. Maybe another time I will actually consider my spiritual condition. No, but right here, right now, Christ comes to you in his gospel and he requires that you receive him. His broken body and shed blood is here to be eaten and to be drunk. He is to be feasted upon. He is to be delighted in. Here is the wonderful riches of communion with God, restoration to your created purpose, to be renewed into the very image of God, to be his creature, his renewed creation in Christ, to have perfect fellowship and bliss in this life and in the life to come. And where such things are held forth, you will be, as one of those whom Matthew Henry says, but exclude yourself. That is what it is. To not believe the gospel, to have this or that excuse for your terrible sin of rejecting Christ, it is only this, you are excluding yourself from salvation. Do not imagine that even for a moment you can blame God. And say, well, if God would show me that I'm a lack, then I can believe, then I can trust, then I can embrace Christ with my arms of faith. Do you not know that the arms of love are outstretched also to you? Romans 10, verse 21. But to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. The call of the gospel, that invitation and indeed offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, it goes forth as the open hands of a loving God, you as a wicked and blaspheming people. And he says that there is not one who is excluded except those who exclude themselves. Here is the solemn purpose of God that on that great day of days where you will stand before him and, God forbid, having lived a whole life of rejecting this offer time after time and stand before his great judgment seat, you will not be able to say anything other than this. Christ came close unto me, and it was I who pushed him away. And I tell you this in the most solemn way. Mm -hmm as one of his servants, as one who is appointed by the king to offer this great wedding feast, I will have to discharge my duty on that day and say that I indeed spoke to those people of the great riches of this wedding feast and they would not come. Let it not be spoken of you. Let it not be spoken of you that you rejected Christ. Here Christ has come so close. He, through this great parable, has brought forward this dividing line of those who are proud and rebellious and those who will humble themselves under his great word. Today, look into this great window into heaven reality, heavenly realities and discover